It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. A big welcome to Molly Hemingway. Thank you for being here today. You're an excellent reporter, and I want to lean on your big brain and figure a few things out. So Molly's a senior editor of The Federalist and a contributor for Fox News, and she also co-authored the book Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. Got a few questions on that, too, that are relevant. But we are 14 months away from a national election. Kind of hard to handicap this. So we'll play a little Kreskin today, Molly. We'll put it in the vault and we'll pull it out in 12 months and see how accurate we are. So then, in September of 2019, where does the Trump team think they stand in this campaign? Well, I think it's a good question in large part because people never think about the fundamentals of a race. Like in 2016, everybody just knew Hillary Clinton was going to win and it was a foregone conclusion. And they forgot those things that people normally remember about presidential elections, like what is the state of the economy? How has the economy been for, for the previous few years? A lot of people in politics and in journalism were focused on the personalities of the candidates involved, and they were ignoring things like the stagnation of the economy that people had been going through for many years and how that might have motivated them to take a risk on someone like Donald Trump. Yeah. Do, do, you, uh, do you believe in polls, Molly? Well, I believe in them less than other people, which helped me a lot in 2016 because I bet some people that Donald Trump would win, wow. which, according to the polls, made close to zero cents. Um, but they, they are meaningful. And when you look at the polls here for the 2020 race, you see that Donald Trump has never been terribly popular. He was not even popular when he won the first time around and it hasn't gotten that much better um, that people show a strong interest in defeating him. And these are real things. And, he, and his election in 2016 was so narrow that, you know, a, a state going a different way, a couple states going a different way with a few tens of thousands of votes, you have a totally different situation. But I think it's still his race to lose. He has a strong economy, and there are indications that that might continue through the next year. He has policies that are actually pretty successful and popular. And I think so much is going to depend on on who the actual nominee that he's running against is. It's almost impossible to truly handicap it until mm. we have an actual person he's running so against. So then if you go to Real Clear Politics and uh, see what Tom Bevin's folks have there, just a few weeks ago, Biden was up eight on Trump. Warren was up two and a half on him. Uh, so he trails the Democratic frontrunners. So what is your sense as to how accurate that is today? I think that the question is what type of nominee Democrats are going to go with. You have someone, you have a lot, of, the number one issue that's animating Democratic voters is ability to defeat Trump. They almost don't care who they get so long as that person can beat Trump. That is something that helps them a lot in the 2020 race. And a lot of sensible people think the way to go with that is to have a moderate. Joe Biden is obviously the front runner for that type of slot, the, the moderate uh, slot, even if he's had to kowtow to the, the more radical left or uh, you know bow down to some of what they've wanted, whether it's on abortion or gender ideology or whatever whatever the issue du jour is. Uh, but I don't see him being strong. I don't see him winning the nomination, even though, again, the polls show that he's it's his to lose. Um, I do think someone like Elizabeth Warren is running an incredibly smart campaign that she has held consistent 
no matter what comes up, whether it's problems with her lying about her Native American tribal status or other issues, she just kind of keeps her eye on what she wants to talk about. She wants to present herself as a very um, solid person who has plans, you know, regardless of how those plans might be unpopular with with the average voter. Mm. And I think that the Democratic Party is increasingly beholden to single female voters. And so you might see women have an advantage in getting the nomination. You you mentioned this a moment ago. The media in general, do you think they've learned lessons from the failures to accurately predict what was going on in the country in 2016? Yeah, uh, no. They (laughs) responded to their obvious failures in 2016 by getting worse. You would have thought that what they would have done was improve, you know, focus on facts as opposed to pushing a narrative, hiring people who don't share their far left views, making structural changes in the newsrooms so that you are making sure you're bringing people with different viewpoints in so that you don't have the embarrassing failures that you had in 2016. Instead, they rolled right into the Russia collusion hoax where they They argued for years that the reasonable explanation for their failures was not that they didn't know what was going on in the country, but that Donald Trump was a Manchurian candidate who had secretly conspired with Russians to steal the 2016 election. And then that blew up in their faces. And they they're trying to pretend it didn't. Uh, They're trying to ignore their failures for the for the previous years. And they are now going right into sharing the Democratic campaign strategy of saying that people who don't share their politics are racist and that the definition of racist is essentially not sharing certain political views. This is so dangerous and I don't know how it can continue mm. through 2020. It's fine for, you know, it's it's all fair in politics where Republicans like to say that their opponents are dangerous socialists and Democrats like to say that their opponents are dangerous racists or whatnot. That's fine. But when the media are so beholden to one side or the other, that is not healthy for the republic and it helps it makes a lot of people lose confidence. My feeling, Molly, is that the outrage meter has been clicking on both sides. It's and it's really it's been strong right and strong left, and it's just banging every day. But just if you were choosing today, Molly, it, it sounds to me like you would pick Elizabeth Warren to be the nominee. Let's just I... let, let's just game that out. Would she be a better candidate than Hillary Clinton was in 2016? I actually think she would be a better candidate than Hillary Clinton. I'm not saying she would be good enough to win, but Hillary Clinton, people underestimated just how much legitimate baggage she had going back decades. People had built up a really uh, long list of reasons for why they didn't like Hillary Clinton, and that was very difficult for her to overcome. She actually did run a, you know, she ran at times a fine campaign. It made sense if you sort of believed all the talking heads and experts on on what she needed to do, which was simply not mess up and she would have easy victory. Other things she did, like not visiting Michigan and Wisconsin, were less wise. But Elizabeth Warren seems to have a greater sense of, like I mentioned, the focus, the purpose. She understands what her race is about. And she has less of the baggage. I don't mean by that that she's more likable than Hillary Clinton. In some ways, I think she might not be more likable, maybe slightly more likable. Um, she, she'll still have problems with reaching out to people outside of her her base of voters or, you know, those women voters who seem to care a lot about sex as a, as a determinant of how they're going to vote. Um, but I do think she would be strong. And I think she also has a way of, like other people just sound like Trump, but less good at what he's doing. So they insult people or they... Um, and, and it seems out of place. Right. And, she doesn't really have that particular approach. Uh, she, But she she's also had some serious missteps, including... Um, you know, 
she's spoken incorrectly about the nature of the uh, the killing of Michael Brown and Ferguson and whatnot. So she needs to she needs to tighten things up, but she um, she has some strengths that I think yeah. should not be. Overlooked. Speaking of tightening tightening things up, does Joe Biden clean it up, or is this his pattern? I, and I, uh, and if it is, is that okay with Democratic voters? I was reading a couple weeks ago where he said that it's not that he misspeaks. It's just who he is, that he has all these gaffes. So I think that there is actually a truth to that. People who've been following him for decades know that he regularly misspeaks or that people would say lie or that he does not have the cognitive function to carry on a race like this. People forget how his earlier campaigns for president went, which was not very well. I I understand that he is someone with a lot of support and a lot of donor support and, and electoral support. I do not see how he could even hope to compete against Donald Trump. And the more that Democratic voters see of that, the more they're going to be nervous. And then when they get nervous, I think the interesting thing will be to see where their votes go. Interesting. Let's talk about the Trump team now. What do you think their target voter is today? Well, one of the things I think about is they clearly had support in 2016 Despite the polls, they had enough to secure victory. I don't think anyone who voted for Donald Trump the first time is not voting for him the second time. They're, so they've, they've kind of got that locked in, and it would be very difficult for them to lose that support. So that, that's the possible. base then. So what they're going to be needing to do is reach out to other people. Now, one thing that's interesting about how he handled things in 2016, the common posture for a Republican candidate in particular is to seem conservative when they're running in the primary, but then moderate when they are trying to appeal to other voters. That is not what Donald Trump did. I mean, we... I you know, just wrote this book on the Kavanaugh confirmation, and one of the things that they did in 2016 was put out a list of who their nominees might be for the Supreme Court nomination. That list came out after he had secured the primary nomination. So he came out as this hardcore conservative with conservative nominees as he was starting the battle for the general. That is so different from, from normal. And what their reasoning was, we interviewed a lot of people in the White House about this, was not to moderate. He was going to stay right where he was, but he was going to push Hillary Clinton to more extreme areas. So if she had put out a list or if she were to talk about who her nominees would be for the Supreme Court, she would be saying things that would turn off a lot of moderate voters or uh, independent voters. And you see that repeated over so many different issues. Not that Trump changes, but that he forces other people to look more and more extreme. To me, this is, you know, it's kind of something we've been seeing for years. You would think that Democrats would wisen up about it and not uh, not fall fall prey to this. Like they keep getting more and more extreme. And then that turns off the moderate voters that they're going to need if they want to win yep. in 2020. Uh, clearly, they had a problem in the suburbs in the midterms. That's been well documented. What, what's the plan for winning them back or winning them over or doing better with women, Molly? Yeah, this is a huge issue and why Trump and Republicans should not be thinking that they that they are in a good position. But if you look at how Democrats won those seats in those in those districts that kind of go Democrat or Republican, depending on the year or had been Republican and are moving Democrat, they claimed that they would be moderate, that they would be doing smart things in Congress, that they would be passing legislation, that they they didn't talk a lot about Trump. They didn't sound extreme on uh, no borders or things like this. The more nationalized the race gets and you have Democrats having to, to, to toe a line that is pretty extreme, they're at risk of not keeping those suburban votes that they had. For Trump, the danger is that you know his rhetoric is something that really does turn off 
certain people, his Twitter style or whatnot, they might like his approach on politics, but they just feel embarrassed about his way of talking or whatnot. So um, it'll, I, I don't think he shows any signs of stopping that. So I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to go in 2020. It might not go well for him. I was looking at something a few weeks ago in the New York Times. It did an analysis of the number of people who did not vote for Trump in 2016. And I got to thinking about Brad Parscale, who's running the campaign for 2020. And I remember a comment he made where he said, we want the same people who voted for us in 2016 to do it again. But we also need to reach people who are like-minded and are close to their household who chose to sit 2016 out or perhaps did not vote at all. And that that seemed to be their push to find those voters. I think that that is a really smart push for two reasons. You had two different groups of people. You had people who just who really were Republican or really were conservative and they didn't trust Donald Trump or they didn't like his rhetoric. They now have had three years to witness how he governs. They're probably really happy with that. I mean, no matter the issue, if it's deregulation or uh, tax reform or uh, pro-life issues or judges or any of these issues, they could not be happier. I mean, you're getting better results with Donald Trump inexplicably than you got with people who really talked the talk and had been lifelong conservatives. So you have those people, you have the people who were just demoralized in 2016 and thought, this is a disaster. I cannot believe that my country has given me these two choices. And it might not be so much about political ideology, but just disappointment with the quality of the candidates. Uh, Donald Trump has a good shot with them. But again, you you know, you just reference this, the suburbs issue, the female voters issue, where they just really have emotional reactions to Donald Trump. It's not like they're rationally disagreeing with his policies per se, but they're having really emotional reactions. It's hard to reason people into a decision that they came to emotionally. And I'm not sure that the Trump campaign can bring them back emotionally. It, it might be dependent on the extremity of the eventual Democratic nominee. Interesting. I want to ask you something about Kavanaugh in a moment here that you found in your book, but just one more question on the politics of Congress. Uh, generally, today, September 2019, Republicans feel as if they can maintain control of the Senate, maybe by a vote or two, but maintain control. They feel increasingly as if they cannot win back control of the House. And the reason for that is so many Republican members from the House are leaving. How come? Well, I just want to first off say on the Senate issue, they have every reason to be fairly confident that they'll keep the Senate. They couldn't have had a more difficult year electorally, meaning the the climate or whatnot, and they managed to increase their number of Senate seats in 2018. So they should probably continue to have those same dynamics, Uh, maybe not as many gains as they'd want, but I don't think they need to worry about losing the Senate at this point. Who knows what can happen in a year? With the House... You know, there are a lot of reasons why people are retiring. And I think chief among them is it is no fun to be in the minority. There is nothing you can do when you're in the minority in the Senate. It's not fun, but there are still a lot of things that you can do to affect legislation or to have control over actual legislation. The House isn't even doing much legislation anymore. They There is no role for anyone to have any authority or any impact at all when you're in the minority. And so a lot of people who maybe went thinking that they would be legislators, instead all they're doing is raising money constantly for their next race. And for what? So they can just be kind of a low-level person who's not doing anything. So it's not totally surprising that you see people announcing their retirement. It's also not the worst thing. I mean, you are having a major shift in the Republican Party from one uh, in terms of 
a lot of voters in the Republican Party have been screaming about this for decades or for a decade. They want to see a change in the type of person who's representing them. And some people don't feel comfortable with what that's becoming. And the proper thing to do is to go ahead and oh, step aside and let someone else try and win yeah. a seat. So your book, Justice on Trial, simple question. Why did you write it? Well, my co-author, Carrie Severino, and I lived through that Kavanaugh confirmation battle that so many of us did. And we just knew it was the most important story to happen to the country last year. And we had access to so many of the key players. And we just thought, this is important, not just because of what happened with this particular confirmation battle, but for what it tells us about the Supreme Court in general. So we we knew we had to write about it. And we interviewed more than 100 people, including you know, the president, vice president, and Supreme Court justices, and all the senators, or most of the senators who were involved, and um, people close to the Kavanaugh family, people close to the Blasey Ford family. And we were just able to tell the definitive account of what happened, what happened behind the scenes. And we thought we knew a lot about what had happened, but we learned in our reporting that we, like, didn't know a fraction of it. So wow. it was really fun to report. But, but I heard more. you say you wrote it to hold the media accountable. Is that is that accurate? I actually, I wouldn't, I don't know if we did it for that reason, but as we were going through and just tracking the actual facts of the case and how they were reported, we were pretty mortified at some particularly egregious examples of media malpractice. It was pretty obvious early on that the media had kind of taken sides on this issue, as they keep doing, and it's not something I support. I think the media should really take their job of reporting facts more seriously and not take political sides. Um, but they were willing to kind of run with any allegation against Brett Kavanaugh, no matter how ludicrous. This included Michael Avenatti's uh, sworn claim from his witness that Brett Kavanaugh ran a as an underage person, ran a serial gang rape cartel through the suburbs of Maryland um, that as had a, raped all these. Yeah. And I mean, this is ludicrous and it's not something that should have been taken seriously. We were in that era where so many people in the media were taking it seriously. And one media outlet actually knew that Michael Avenatti's claimed second witness that would corroborate these claims was saying that she didn't corroborate the claims. And they sat on that from before his confirmation vote to several weeks after. Just examples like that that we lay out do not make the media look particularly good or make, unfortunately, too many people in the media uh, do not look do not look good mm-hmm. in how they covered this very important story. You saw the move that Jerry Nadler made over the summer, the uh, chairman of the uh, Judiciary Committee in the House, the Democrat from New York. He's writing to the National Archives seeking presidential records that relate to Kavanaugh's time as a lawyer working for President Bush in the White House. I think it's 2001 to 2006, about a five-year period. What, what, what is he looking for? Well, I this reminds me that I was up at, at Fox in New York on election night, and the next day I took a train back to D.C., and I happened to sit right across from him as he loudly into various phone calls explained his plans for impeaching both Kavanaugh Come and on. Donald Trump. And I wrote it up because it was just unbelievable. I mean, he's just that saying it you. right there. Yes. Um, And so he'd actually laid out his plans for the Kavanaugh impeachment. At that point, it was a little different. He was going to go after the FBI investigation, which he claimed was insufficient for the for the case or that he believed that Kavanaugh had perjured himself. The both of those things fell apart. They were based on shoddy reporting. So now he's going for these archives. That was actually the original game plan for the anti-Kavanaugh effort was to. And it was not a dumb one because Kavanaugh had millions of papers that that the Senate could go after. Uh, And they went after many of the papers. And that was where all those fights were with Cory Spartacus Booker and these people. But the issue is it's just kind of bizarre that he's going after these things. 
Brett Kavanaugh has been on the court for a year. He's confirmed. There's not. I mean, there's what? What, what would you do even if? I, I mean, I don't. I don't really know what he's going it's for. An and it also point. risks yeah. him looking like all of his investigations are less legitimate uh, by by going after I, this. I type was just of paper. curious as to what he thought there could be that could be out there, and I haven't been able to determine that. Yeah, I I really don't know. I mean, there 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 are a lot of things that are interesting in these papers. Brett Kavanaugh served in the Bush White House for much of that White House, and so and part of the time that he was there was as staff sec- as the secretary. So even though he wasn't involved in the decision making, he technically was like signing off on every paper that went past his desk. Yeah, I guess you're right about so, that. Yeah, but it wouldn't even necessarily involve him, even if they found something. So it could just be a fishing expedition just to go after other people. Who knows? Final, final question for you, Molly, and thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the book. And um, it's always great to have you on as a Fox News colleague. But I, I asked this question because I, I haven't been able to find the answer. But with regard to the Kavanaugh accusers, where are they today? Well, that is another reason why we wrote the book was looking into, you know, sort of a follow up on these stories. A lot of these stories just kind of dropped away the moment that he was confirmed. Some of the people who made accusations were referred for criminal prosecution to the Department of Justice. But as of this point, nothing has happened with those accusers. And it is important that when people make false allegations that they be held accountable for that. And really nobody has been held accountable, you know, whether it's the senators who violated the established Senate procedures for how to handle allegations of misconduct, uh, the people who made the false accusations, or, you know, the media kind of gave each other awards for their coverage of these things. And if you don't hold people accountable for, you know, what was an attempt to destroy someone's life without evidence, you know, it's not it's not bad to look into allegations. But when there's no evidence for them, you have to kind of keep yourself in check. Uh, it is a little bit disappointing to see uh, not much. But I will say Christine Blasey Ford has definitely been continuing her in interest in uh, the narrative surrounding this. There are books that will be written with her apparent cooperation, and she definitely was keeping tabs on the people we were speaking with about what they were saying to us. So she's still involved and interested in how that narrative is. So we will uh, likely hear from her again sometime soon. Molly, thank you so much. Real pleasure getting all your insights. Molly Hemingway with me today. Molly, thanks. Thank you. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.